El Fanboy Episode 20. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles, MFR here with you, and this is the 20th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. Uh, man, last Friday was a lot of fun. I hope you guys took the time. I know it was long. I know it was like two hours and 20 minutes, easily the longest episode I've ever put together. Um, and it might have been a little scattershot. I don't know. I was just kind of flying by the seat of my pants. I had all these wonderful people who wanted to pitch in with their thoughts and insights, and I tried to balance it all out. I hope you guys enjoyed it half as much as I did. Um, the feedback's been pretty great from those of you who, who have taken the time to listen to that gargantuan episode. I want to once again thank uh, Jet from Batman on Film, uh, Dave from Storm of Spoilers, uh, Brandon from the Medium Popcorn Podcast and Kelvin from the Splash Report, of course, my boy, uh, for coming on and talking about all things fanboy and geek related. It was a really spirited conversation. I think our uh, our long form DCEU chat was kind of one for the ages because uh, <laughs> there were some really interesting, uh, shall we say, pregnant pauses in there where we all kind of had to like, you know, decide what can I say here? Because something you guys may not realize is that in this world of, of online journalism that we're a part of, there's times where you're really kind of not allowed to say something because you might expose a source or you might burn a bridge with a studio. So sometimes we have to be very strategic and tactful with how we bring up things. And there were a couple times where we sort of had to navigate around those kinds of landmines on Friday. Uh, but what's interesting is if you guys go back and listen to it, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that we couldn't just say outright is the case or unequivocally one way or the other, but there's a lot of little nuggets in there for you guys to think about. Trust me. Um, but yeah, you know, thinking about that conversation, thinking about the general superhero landscape it's funny, in certain ways, I feel myself, and this is going to be like a heresy considering, you know, this is a fanboy show and I am who I am and I write what I write and I'm passionate about what I'm passionate about, but I feel myself at times starting to get my own sense of fatigue about the comic book genre. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'll talk about it on an industry-wide level or from a movie-going public level, the idea of kind of getting tired of these movies and when is it going to be too much. Um, but uh, interestingly, I'm starting to feel a little bit on a personal level, just a sense of sort of exhaustion about these movies and, and thinking about them and being invested in them. I find myself gravitating towards films nowadays that have nothing to do with superheroes, that have nothing to do with cinematic universes. You know, the movies that are on my radar nowadays are things like Baby Driver, uh, are things like even like on Netflix, these, these interesting original films they're putting out, like Shimmerland. You know, like I, I'm interested in interesting filmmaking and, and, and strong standalone stories. 
And I'm kind of really getting tired of the superhero sort of formula and and constantly just like, what's the next superhero movie? Like, I don't know. It's I'm not saying I'm going to stop covering it. And I'm, I'm not saying that I'm officially turning my back on it. Not by a long shot. There's still a lot coming that I'm interested in. But I don't know. I'm just I'm starting to feel, at least in these last few days, like I would rather head into the city and go to some little in, indie theater and watch a low-budget movie that has nothing to do with the shit that's going on in the cinemas nowadays, then go see one of the another one of these you know blockbuster tentpole movies. I'm just feeling a little bit burnt out on, uh, on on these huge franchises and how everything's interconnected and everything's part of some mythology that you have to know about in advance before you go to the theaters. I'm just kind of I don't know. I'm feeling a little over it, guys. I'm feeling a little over it. Um, but, you know, in thinking about all this stuff uh, and, and satisfying movie experiences that I've had this year, it's interesting to me that the two comic book films of the, I believe, four that have come out so far this year, uh, the two that I have found the most uh, satisfying are the ones from the most wildly inconsistent franchises. You know, you've got Logan from the X-Men universe. You've got Wonder Woman from the DC Extended universe. And those are two franchises that you know, not a lot of people have a lot of love for. You know, there, there's, you know, the X-Men movies have been all over the place for the last 20 years. They're either beloved or they're meh or they're hated. Uh, the DC movies, as you guys know, you know, while there's a lot of passion about them online, the general response hasn't been that great to the first three. And then all of a sudden Wonder Woman comes out and it like completely fucking resets the table. But you know what? Like that's what happens when you take risks. You know, you may fall flat on your face nine times out of ten. But when you actually stick the landing, when you actually succeed on that risk, it's incredible. And I think that's, I, that's what happened here with DC and with X-Men this year. Um, you know, Marvel may be king right now, but they're so risk-averse that they don't generate anything nearly as satisfying as these movies. You know, there's nothing, no, nothing they've put out is as riveting as Logan or as emotionally impactful as Wonder Woman. Or if you want to look back at last year, you know, as genre redefiningly creative as Deadpool, you know, Marvel just kind of plays it safe and that's fine. Listen, it's a winning formula. I will never argue with it. Let them do that until it backfires. But I just find that I just, I never feel as like locked in and compelled to their movies as I do for movies like Logan and Wonder Woman. Which is funny because, again, those come from franchises that are all over the map. That I could, I mean, Wonder Woman in particular comes from a franchise that I have all kinds of weird feelings about and mainly like kind of negative disappointment, heartbreaking, sort of like, you know, you crushed my spirits type stuff with Batman v Superman. And all of a sudden, Wonder Woman comes out and I feel complete and utter joy and wow, and my jaw's on the floor, you know? And again, it just comes from taking risks and it's a beautiful fucking thing when they land. Um, you know, I, I went back and I saw Wonder Woman a second time. Uh, I didn't get to bring that up on the last podcast because it was so loaded. 
Um, but yeah, last week I saw Wonder Woman for a second time, and you know, I think of it, I think of it as 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 taking me on just a much more fulfilling and satisfying ride. Okay, if if we think of the range of emotions that a film typically takes you through on a scale of one to 10, right? With one being, you know, despair, sadness, you're, you're crushed by something you're watching and 10 being elation where you got goosebumps and you're cheering in the theater and you feel that, that, that jump of adrenaline because you're watching something that's just, wow, I can't fucking believe how epic and awesome this is. You know, I find that the MCU movies like to play it safe, right? Like they, they stick between four and eight. The, the whole time. You know, the dramatic points are never all that dramatic. And the thrilling points are never fully thrilling because the stakes aren't there. You know, you got crappy villains. Uh, there's jokes that are undercutting the tension and, and removing from the epicness of the moment. And you don't end up getting those goosebumps in, movie, in Marvel movies. You know, I, I really... I know I definitely don't. And I, I kind of get the sense that people don't really go there with these Marvel movies. They enjoy them. They'll give them a thumbs up. They'll give them that stamp of approval. But how many people are really genuinely moved? Who's ugly crying at a Marvel movie? I don't think anybody is. Who's, you know, who's feeling the utter adrenaline rush kick or you want to stand up in the theater and cheer because you just watched something so breathtakingly awesome that you can't fucking contain yourself at a Marvel movie? You're not. Because they stick within that, like the four to eight range. On the other hand, you, you, you look at Wonder Woman, you look at Logan, and they take you through that full range from one to 10 and back again. They're bold. They're not scared to aim really fucking high. Um, you know, it's like the most emotional I've ever gotten during an MCU movie was the out-of-body fanboy experience I had watching the Avengers during that sequence in the uh, in the Battle of New York when we saw all of the heroes working together in one sweeping shot. You know, that and, and when Bruce Banner said, I'm always angry. Yeah, th- those were the moments that really grabbed me and made the hair on the back of my neck stand up. Meanwhile, they had very little to do with the film itself. You know, it wasn't like the, the it wasn't really about the narrative. It was about the amazing novelty of watching these characters all together on screen doing the kinds of things that I've only dreamt of. I have the kinds of things that I've had to use my imagination to to think of. You know, so it was more so just about the amazing fan service of moments like those. Not necessarily because the movie itself ginned up a lot of tension and interest in that, if that makes any sense. Um, And I think of all this because, you know, shortly after I recorded last week's epic episode, the internet started to get flooded with the early buzz on Spider-Man. And, you know, the compliments are very sort of like vague and, and, and like toothless. You know, it seems to be a lot of the same fluffy, fluffy compliments people gave Guardians of the, Ga- of the Galaxy Volume 2 a couple months ago. Basically centering on how fun it is. And I don't give a fuck about fun. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, as of now, the only compliment I've read that piques my interest is that it apparently succeeds as a John Hughes-style teenage coming-of-age movie. That sounds exciting to me, and I, I kind of can't wait to see how they pull off that tone in a Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie. I've always thought that that could be like a perfect fit. 
Uh, I always liked hearing that the writers were thinking of that as their inspiration. And, it, you know, according to some of the stuff I've read, they've kind of perfectly nailed that. That it almost feels like it's a John Hughes movie from the 80s where one of the characters just happens to also have radioactive spider powers. And I'm, I'm interesting to see how they pull that off. I also hear that Michael Keaton is perhaps the best villain since Loki, the most compelling, interesting, badass villain since Loki. So that, you know, th those two compliments I'll take to the bank, and that has me intrigued. But most of what I'm seeing is just about how what a generally good time it is. And I'm like, okay, fine. That does, you know, the, after I just sat through Wonder Woman a second time last week and it took me on this exhilarating emotional roller coaster ride, I don't really care about a movie that's just, oh, it's a good time. Like, I, I can have a good time elsewhere. I can have a good time on my couch. Nowadays, I, I want something more from these movies. And maybe I'm aging myself out of them. I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you right fucking now. If the DC movies continue, like if Wonder Woman is the future of DC and that's how their movies are going to be, I'm going to be firmly a DCEU fanboy. We're going to have to see what happens with Justice League. And I have some bochincha on that, by the way. Um, but yeah, we'll have to see how Justice League goes. Um, and I just, you know, one last thing closing on the Spider-Man buzz. Like I just, to me, reading through it and scrolling through my feed on Friday night, it was like, de it felt like deja vu. To when the opening, when the screenings for for Guardians Two came out, you know, and it got me, it got me fairly excited at the time, but then I felt burnt out. You know, when I finally saw the movie, I only thought it was pretty good. You know, I have the video review on the El Fanboy YouTube page. I wrote a review also uh, for the Splash Report. You know, I gave it a B minus, and I stand by that. And to me, that kind of buzz sounds like a B-minus movie, where, yes, you have a pleasant time, you enjoy your popcorn and your soda, you laugh a couple times, you see some cool shit, then you go home and you rapidly forget about it. So I'm hoping Spider-Man Homecoming isn't that, but, you know, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. Um, I will say, though, that with Wonder Woman so recently in my, in my mind and Logan so recently in, in my heart... Uh, it's going to be hard for Spider-Man Homecoming to really compare because those two were just amazing films. Uh, if Homecoming is just another pleasant, fluffy Marvel movie, uh, you know, I'm not going to really, it's not going to be something that I'm going to be emphatically recommending to people. Uh, but while we're on the subject of Spider-Man, you know, one little intriguing bit of bochinche, uh, guys, pay attention to the Splash Report today and this week because Kelvin is working on a scoop uh, that, that is, you know, it, it relates to Spider-Man. It relates to Sony. It relates to that whole like Spider-Man extended universe that Sony's working on. And, uh, you know, it looks like homecoming may have already started planting the seeds for these extended Spider-Man universe movies that they're working on. There's an act. Oh, I, you know, what? I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to give away Kelvin's scoop. You're going to have to go to the splashreport.com to see exactly what it is he's uh, working on over there. I believe he's putting that up today. Today is Tuesday. So we shall see if he puts that up. Um, but, you know, so while we're on the subject, too, of the uh, this extended Spider-Man universe that Sony's working on, um, what a fucking mess. You know, last week, Amy Pascal says Venom is in the MCU. Then a few days later... 
she retracts that. Uh, I think like on Saturday, she retracted it after saying it on like Monday or Tuesday. You know, this situation seems so ass backwards to me. It's fucking unbelievable. You know, I'm still secretly hoping that they have their acts together. Uh, you know, that, 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 that they have their ex more together than they're letting on and that there will be a backdoor to allow Holland to appear in those movies and for Venom to be loosely connected to the MCU. You know, I, I'm hoping that Kevin Feige, they just want to see how Venom performs and how good it is before they say, you know what? Yeah, we can co-mingle these movies. You know, I hope that that's more the case because if they're not, if they if 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 Venom is really going to never interact with Tom Holland's Spider-Man, then fuck you, count me out, you're clueless, you're tone deaf, and you don't know what you're doing. Okay? Uh Pascal, you know, had this fucking quote that made this put me through I wanted to put my head through a wall. Um she said, you know, because you know, her and Kevin Feige were just discussing the importance of just making one good movie at a time and then seeing where the chips may fall, which to me sounds like they are open to the idea of eventually connecting these things. It's just for the time being, they want to just make them as standalones and then we'll see what happens later. So they're talking about that, right? The idea of like, just make a good movie. And then Pascal says, sure, we said, let's make a good movie. But, you know, it gets really fucked up when all, when all people are talking about is the world of the franchise. You know, people used to come to me and go, I can make a franchise out of this for you. I can write a Bible, like for the most absurd things. And you're like, I don't need a franchise. I just need a movie. And it's annoying. Really, Amy? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's annoying that you don't seem to have a fucking clue what you're doing. I'm sorry you don't understand the landscape you're producing these movies in. I'm sorry you don't think people would ask questions about what world a movie about Spider-Man's most popular villain will be set in while you're busy relaunching Spider-Man in a world that may not fucking include that villain. I'm so sorry that you're trying desperately to fuck up a good thing. You poor thing. Let's all just get out of your way so you can make your shitty silver and black movie that nobody wants to see. Good. Have fun with that, Amy. And keep letting us know how annoying it is that people want to talk about what world a movie is in. Fucking clueless shit. Um... And since I brought up Bochinche, uh, which, again, for my gringo listeners, again, means gossip and uh, word on the street type stuff. Man, I continue to hear just how intense the situation on Justice League is. Remember, I'm the one who wrote the story. I broke this shit before anyone else was talking about it. Over on the Splash Report, first week of June... I'm the one who let you guys know that Justice League, as we see it in November, assuming it comes out in November, will in no way resemble the film that was originally planned. That it's been getting reshot and sort of remade on the spot all through our principal photography. And yeah, I let you guys know that what Whedon is coming in to do is not just like uh, a couple of nips and tucks. They are overhauling the fuck out of that movie. And naturally... There were people who came at us and debunked the story. They came to the Splash Report. They called us out on their own websites, all this shit, right? Well, as weeks go by and we start hearing more and more 
and we see the pictures from the reshoots and we hear about the composer being replaced and more guys start actually trying to dig in deep, we at the Splash Report keep hearing little things behind the scenes like, holy shit, so sorry we initially doubted you. You were absolutely right. We can't report it because of yada, 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 but you nailed it. It's like, yeah, we fucking nailed it. I wouldn't say that a movie of this magnitude, of this importance, is going through something as major as this unless I was fucking certain of it. Kelvin wouldn't trust our source. We would not be reporting something this huge about a movie as seminal as Justice League unless we were confident in it. And the more we hear, the more people are coming to us going... Yeah, dude, this movie is fucking, it's, it's just, it's a total, total redo that they've been working on, like, pretty much since day one. And, uh, you know, last week, I pointed out that everyone should pay very close attention to whether or not Snyder ever returns to the director chair of one of the DC movies again, especially Justice League 2, since he was supposedly lined up to do that. Because that will be very indicative of what's really going on behind the scenes. You know, if you if he doesn't come back, that says it all. Also, as part of the stuff I've been hearing, remember how I brought up on last week's show, you know, when I had my epic panel about how much of the trailer footage we've seen is going to end up in the final theatrical cut? Remember, I was I was comparing it to Rogue One, where if you look at the first two Rogue One teaser teasers and trailers, a lot of that shit didn't make it into the theatrical cut after they reshot half the movie. Well, I'm hearing that we may not be seeing any of the shit from the previous Justice League trailers in the final cut. Now, I'm sure that's an exaggeration. You know, I, I'm 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 I I get the sense that that has to be hyperbole on some case. You can't throw out the entire fucking movie, but from what I'm hearing, almost none of what's been shown in the trailers will be in the final cut once Whedon is done reshooting the thing. So keep an eye out for that because that'll also be very very telling. Um, now, before we get into the news. Uh, I want to kind of get, I'm going to kind of change things up a little bit. I'm going to read you the two latest reviews for the L Fanboy podcast that you're listening to right now. And I'm going to answer a listener question uh, right, right quickly, right up here, right up front, because your feedback is so important to this show. And sometimes I think mentioning this stuff at the very, very end is a disservice because maybe not all of you have time to listen to an hour plus long podcast. So since you guys are my lifeblood, since you guys are why I do this, um, I just want to read you the reviews and answer your questions right up here, right up front. So uh, over the weekend, I got uh, another review. Um, It was, uh, this show is a can't miss for me by Blue and Glued on iTunes. Uh, this person wrote every week. I'm there. Love MFR's take on just about everything. And even when I don't agree, I dig his passion. Keep up the great work. So thank you, blue and glue, uh, five-star review. Then another one from, uh, RZ, RZ Oz, RZ, I don't know how to pronounce that. RZ Oz, uh, love El fanboy is the title of the review. 
And this person wrote, I can listen to MFR rant all day about DC. I hope someone at WB listens to this show. I started listening to him when he was on Los Fanboys and followed him to El Fanboy the second he started it. Tried listening to the new LF last week and it's unlistenable. MFR for life. Jesus, guys. Uh, Thank you very, very much. Um... Like I said on on the Twitter, it really never gets old getting this kind of feedback. I also had uh, I have people who write me messages on the MFRL fanboy Facebook page, just you know people reaching out just to say what a fan they are, that they only just discovered uh, the show now that Los Fanboys is back. Uh, they realize where the hell is Mario's voice, and then they go on Google and they realize I've been doing this now since February. So there have been a bunch of people who, you know, are just now discovering that El Fanboy lives on. So if you're listening, if you're one of the people who didn't notice that I was gone until Los Fanboys returned like a week or two ago, welcome aboard. The El Fanboy train is up and running. So, uh, you know, uh, find a seat, make yourself comfortable, because this train is leaving the station, motherfucker. We're 20 episodes in. It's still a new show. But, uh, you know, I got some exciting shit I want to do. And last Friday was was just a taste when I had all those wonderful fellow passionate geeks who are in the know on the show with me. That's just a small taste of the kind of stuff I want to be able to do for you guys. And that assuming I ever get the goddamn Patreon page, Patreon page going, that I will be able to do for you on a more regular basis. Um but okay, so now the fan question, the listener question that I want to answer this week is one that I didn't get to on last week's show. Um, so Sam Cantu sent me in that question about Nightwing and Zach Efron, uh, and I want to finally let you know let him know. So Sam, if you're listening, my man, uh, I asked someone in the know, and they said that the film is still, you know, Nightwing is still so early in its development that it's unlikely that those kinds of conversations have taken place yet. Uh, I, I guess, you know, from what they gather, from what I gather, uh, I guess they still need to nail the script and the tone they're going for before they start offering it up to any actors. Uh, which is a slight departure from the way Warner Brothers has done things in the past. You know, they cast a bunch of people way before their movies were ever even written. But... You know, and maybe, you know, as we know, DC's trying to do something different. The culture behind the scenes there is changing. So this idea that Efron might be up for the role doesn't seem to be in the cards for now because the movie is still very far off in terms of its production cycle, uh, you know, far off from starting. Um, and personally, I, I'm not sure it'd be wise. You know, I like Efron a lot. I do. Uh, I think he's got some interesting range and and charm. Uh, believe it or not, like he really won me over in the film adaptation of the musical Hairspray. Uh, I thought that movie showed that the kid's got chops. You know, he could sing, he could dance, he can act. He's got he can be funny, he can be heartfelt. He can you know I I, I think rather highly of Mr. Efron, but. Unfortunately, he's been linked to some really, you know, uh, big box office duds, the most recent of which being Baywatch. Then he had that movie last year, the year before, where like it was a DJ movie where he played a DJ and I think it made like $15 at the box office. Um, you know, he, 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 he seems to be a cancer 
to the box office. I don't know why, but he seems to be. And I'm really just not sure that a major studio would want to build a huge blockbuster that's going to cost them, you know, over a hundred million dollars. I don't think they'd want to build that around him. Right now, I think the the Zac Efron brand is somewhat unreliable at this point. All right, but okay, let's get into the news of the week. Now, as per usual, we will get today's uh, this week's news roundup started with the box office. So today, being Tuesday, we get the weekend actuals which, as I always remind you, are a little bit different than the Sunday's estimates. And what's interesting about this one is that uh, Wonder Woman and Cars 3 were in a dead heat all weekend to see who would actually take the number two slot. And according to the estimates, they were locked in at the very same exact figure, which we all knew, everyone with a pulse knew, that it wouldn't shake out that way, that one of them was going to come out on top. And I was pulling for Wonder Woman, and it fucking did it. Wonder Woman officially leapfrogged over Cars 3. Cars 3 is in its second week. Wonder Woman is in its fourth week. And Wonder Woman made almost a million bucks more than Cars 3 did. But let's go in order here. So number one is Transformers, The Last Night. Uh, in terms of its weekend gross, it made $44,680,073. Uh, that may sound decent, but when you consider the fact that the total, the uh, I believe the five-day cum, because they, they didn't wait till Friday, they opened it on uh, Wednesday, uh, or maybe even Tuesday, uh, the total domestic cum is under $70 bucks. This is by far... The lowest opening for a Transformers movie domestically to date. So you got to wonder if Paramount is starting to wonder what it is they can do to sort of revitalize the franchise. Uh, you know, by many accounts, this is Michael Bay's last Transformers movie. So that in and of itself could help because bringing in some fresh blood to navigate the franchise could do it some good. But, you know. It's uh, it definitely is not hitting the same notes as the previous films. Yeah, you know, these movies have typically been critic-proof. Some of the other ones, you know, have gotten horrible reviews, but still opened to embarrassingly high numbers. Uh, it looks like Transformers: The Last Night uh, is not going to quite touch those numbers. And what's interesting too is what this could mean for the overall cinema-going landscape. There's been a lot of conversation, especially. Uh, since early 2016, about how reviewers, uh, not reviewers, moviegoers are becoming much more discerning about the movies they go see. Now, you know, reviews are starting to become more and more important. Word of mouth are becoming is becoming more and more important. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's probably a direct result of the fact of how expensive it's becoming to go to the movies. You know, when I was a kid, you can go to the movies for like eight bucks. Uh, when my dad was a kid, you can go for like a dollar. <laughs> you know, like with every generation, obviously things get more expensive, but movies are sort of pricing themselves out. So if you if you want to take your girl to the movies and just taking her to the movies and getting popcorn and soda is going to run you $60, you're going to be a lot more picky about what movies you go see. 
And that's been definitely been going on these last few years where reviews really, really matter. And I think Transformers is the first one to see, I mean, yeah, the first in that franchise to show. And if you pay attention, a lot of these big time tent poles that have been underperforming or bombing since last year happen to have shitty reviews. And it's again, you know, it's it's fun. It's interesting to think the Transformers, which was once bulletproof, it, it once didn't matter that the reviews were like 17 percent. It still did amazing business. It looks like there's been a bit of a paradigm shift and people will now only come out if the word of mouth is strong. Which brings me to Wonder Woman, which is a beautiful example of what good word of mouth can do. So Wonder Woman pulled in 24906310 dollars to confidently take the second place bow. Because uh, Cars 3, its estimates were 24074497 So we're looking at a differential of almost 800000 which is just shy of a million bucks. So that's quite a leapfrog. And mind you, Wonder Woman is on fewer screens than Cars 3 and has been out for double the amount of time as Cars 3. And Cars 3 is that family audience, right? That Pixar audience that tends to do amazing numbers. Just remember, just remember Finding Dory last year. So Wonder Woman is overperforming across the board, and it's all word of mouth. And you want to hear how good the word of mouth is? Get Let's try this on for size. Wonder Woman, which is a movie about only Wonder Woman, is about to surpass domestically both Suicide Squad and Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Let that sink in for a moment, all right? I'm comparing it directly to its DCEU brethren, okay? Batman v Superman in particular was a film that that contained the first ever epic confrontation between Batman and Superman on screen. It contained the introduction of, you know, a fan-favorite villain, Lex Luthor. It in, it contained elements of the you know the best selling book the death of Superman. It had Doomsday in it, and it had the first ever cinematic appearance of a live action Wonder Woman. Batman v Superman was a stacked fucking movie with a, a ton of different things going for it, and this solo movie about Wonder Woman that doesn't have any of those bells and whistles is about to overtake it by this time next week. That's unbelievable. And it's all because of the word of mouth. And this kind of goes back to that point, that reviews and word of mouth, that sort of positive buzz that's generated is very, very important and can no longer be discounted. That's why you can't blame a studio when they're trying to figure out, how can I make sure this movie appeals to the masses? Because if it doesn't, and it's a crappy movie, and review and, and critics don't like it, your movie is going to underperform and it's going to be a black eye on, on what it is you're trying to build over there. So remember that Wonder Woman is about to overtake the rest of its DCEU brethren. And just for shits and giggles, since we were talking about you know how ticket prices have changed and all that sort of stuff, I always just find this stuff interesting. Uh, you know, you can look up when when you adjust things uh, for ticket inflation, meaning, you know, if things cost, 
several years ago what they cost now, what would movies from the past have earned today? So just for the fuck of it, I was looking at uh, Superman the movie from 1978. Uh, You know, if you adjust for ticket inflation, what did that movie actually make domestically with today's dollars? That movie made $507 million, um, which actually means that like it actually made more than any of these DCEU movies, which is kind of funny to think. Uh, but yeah, it just, yeah, that, that, that's not any data that you should be thinking of and, and throwing at your friends' faces. It's just funny to think that the 1978 Christopher Reeve movie had like way, way, way outgrossed the rest of the DC uh, extended universe if you actually adjust those tickets to today's prices. Uh, moving right along in the fourth spot, you got 47 meters down. Uh, that would made seven million bucks, and then you've got the mummy in fifth place with only six million dollars. Now, yeah, you know, just a little tiny bit of you know whatever on the mummy. The mass exodus has begun. Theaters are dumping this movie already. It's only been out. This was its third week, and you want to hear how many screens have stopped showing it. It lost 1,054 screens from last week to this week. That means theaters are already basically trying to phase this puppy out. Um, it's not, it is no bueno, I tell you. It is no bueno. Uh, you know, and if you want to compare it to similar movies, you know, Dracula Untold, um, you know, it, it's really, it, it's, um, it's release gross was $56 million. And right now, The Mummy is at, what are we looking at here? Uh, $68 million. So it's made a, little, made a little bit more than Dracula Untold, but Dracula Untold was like a shitty little nothing spinoff. You know, The Mummy had Tom Cruise in it and is supposed to launch a franchise. And at the end of the day, it's going to have made, you know, not much more than, you know, domestically than uh, Dracula Untold. So just something to think about there. Now we're going to move on a little bit. One of the other big stories that's been, you know, unfolding over the course of the last week, you know, which we spoke about a lot on Friday, uh, which is uh, Han Solo. You know, Lord and Miller were fired. And ever since, you know, there's been little tidbits. And over the weekend, there was a fascinating report about exactly how chaotic things were getting on that set prior to them, you know, getting the sack. You know, there's a, apparently, you know, they moved at a snail's pace. Apparently the, you know, the Lucasfilm was not happy with Alden Ehrenreich's performance as Han Solo. So they brought in very late in the game, they brought in an acting coach to help Mr. Ehrenreich. Uh, There's been, they had to fire and replace the editor. Apparently, Lord and Miller work at a very sort of slow, meticulous pace, and they don't do a lot of camera angles, and they don't do as many setups per day as most of these uh, you know, filmmakers tend to on films of this scale. So there was like a lot of waiting around, and the you know there are sources saying that they were a very indecisive duo. You know, th- this is just a different ball game for them. Uh, you know, the source told the Hollywood Reporter. You know, you have to make decisions much earlier than what they're used to. I don't know if it's because there were two of them, but they were not decisive. 
And it's true. You know, when you're making smaller, little character-driven films, you know, you can sort of decide things on the fly. You can, you know, say, let's try this line. Let's do this. Let's explore this scene. Let's make today about figuring out this scene. You can't do that shit in a Star Wars movie. You know, there's hundreds of crew members hanging around waiting for you to make a decision because they have things to prepare for, construct, design, and, you know, prepare for you. And you can't just be deciding as you go what to do. And it sounds like, they, you know, Lord and Miller did not necessarily do well with this upscaling, with preparing for all of these different sets of circumstances and all the different pressures that have come with it. And then when you combine that with the fact that apparently just the tone was all wrong, that they were sort of massacring Lawrence Kasdan's script and changing things, you know, it's just, it makes a lot of sense that they're gone. And and this isn't to attack them. You know, I, will, I, I like Lord and Miller. I liked the few films that they have made. Uh, in fact, I hope that they take Warner Brothers' supposedly open offer to return to The Flash. I think they'd be a good fit for the Flash, um, but I it just sounds to me like this was destined to fail from the beginning. Similar to what uh, we discussed on last week's show, it's like it feels like it sounded like an originally a good idea, right? It sounded like right, we're going to hire a bunch of young, hungry filmmakers with their own vision to sort of take Star Wars in interesting directions. We'll hire Josh Trank, who was just coming off Chronicle. We'll hire Gareth Edwards, who was coming off Godzilla. We'll hire Lord and Miller, who just made the Lego movie in 21 Jump Street. And they're going to you know, bring their own flavor to the Star Wars universe. But the problem is, they're learning that it's too soon for that kind of shit. You know, especially when you're dealing with properties like Han Solo and like Rogue One, which has to lead seamlessly into episode four, you can't really take risks when you're choosing properties that are so closely linked to the source material, that are so closely linked to what we all know as fans we all know and love already. So I'm sure eventually they'll be able to bring in more quote-unquote visionary directors, more auteurs, auteurs for uh, future Star Wars movies as they venture off into unexplored territory. But really, you know, guys like Ron Howard are exactly who they should have been hiring for these kinds of movies. So, you know, now I'm sure the cast and crew are quite happy to be in the sure hands of an experienced filmmaker like Ron Howard. So, you know, we'll see how that all shakes out. We'll see if the movie turns out good. I still, for one, don't want to see a fucking Han Solo movie. It, it's never made sense to me. I've said it a million times, but just in case you are new to the podcast, you know, to me, the, this would have all only made sense if it was like a teenage Han Solo, a totally different Han than we met in the, in the cantina in uh, episode four. But th this is going to be rubbing up right up against that way too closely. Okay, Alden Ehrenreich is 28 years old. He's about to be 30. You know, he, he's in that late 20s. I bring that up because Harrison Ford was only 35 when he played Han Solo in episode four. So there's like a seven-year gap. So why would you hire an actor that doesn't even really look like Harrison Ford to play Han Solo during a period of time that's pretty much where we met him? 
You know, if they would have hired like a teenager, a guy who was like 18 years old to kind of show the young up and coming scoundrel and how he got pulled into the world of smuggling and all and con man shit like that would have been interesting. I, I could see, you know, because then it's not so tethered so closely to what we already know about Han Solo. But instead, they're just kind of going, all right, so here's Han Solo, like, let's say five years before we met him. And here's his origin story. Like, that doesn't sound fucking interesting to me. It just, it, it doesn't, and it feels like, it feels forced and creatively hamstrung. And I'm sure that's how Lord and Miller f- felt. They felt creatively hamstrung by how closely linked this had to be to episode four. They were probably hoping they could make their own movie, but you can't make your own movie when Han Solo is practically the same age in both episode four and this movie. It needs to feel like the same character at the same point in his life, practically. All right, I've beat that horse. I'm ready to move on. I'm sure you're ready to move on. Let's not make this Han Solo movie. It's too late. We're stuck with it, but let's move right along. Um, Kind of circling back to Wonder Woman real quick, uh, since she did just have a great weekend. There's more sequel chatter. Uh, Patty Jenkins, you know, she's, uh, you know, she's, she is said to be working on a sequel script with Jeff Johns. Uh, I'm curious about the fact that why isn't Alan Heinberg working on it? He's the one who's credited with the screenplay for Wonder Woman. And meanwhile, Jeff Johns, who, you know, everyone says he wrote it is not credited for it, but according to recent reports, it's her and John's working on the script. And Alan Heinberg has not been mentioned. So I'm like, where's Mr. Heinberg? He did a great job with Wonder Woman. I know he's apparently... I say, I don't know what he's working on. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. But anyway, she's working on the sequel, right? And she says, uh, there's always a struggle in an origin story to get to the point where the superhero exists. And now I'm dying to just let loose and have a great time with her. She said, yeah, not for the whole movie, but in moments, I'm excited to see her power really soar and us have a great time having a great Wonder Woman in our world. That's what I'm craving, which I mean, no offense to Miss Jenkins, but like, you know, this is sort of like par for the course. These kinds of statements happen all the time. Uh, whenever directors are coming back for a sequel, they always point out that the origin story is always kind of tough to get around because you have to get that world established and you have to build towards understanding how this world works and what this hero is like. But in the sequels, really kind of where you get to the real meat and potatoes, because now you don't have to worry about all that world building. So, you know, it sounds like she's, you know, right on, you know, uh, on the same path as, as many other directors who've launched a superhero franchise and are now asked to come back for part two. Uh, So good luck to her and Mr. Johns with that. I'm optimistic for you in terms of the tone that they're trying to nail. You know, Wonder Woman really did have such a great blend of like action and romance and comedy. And Jenkins says that, you know, she's much more inspired to continue on that balance. You know, she she really likes the tonal balance that Wonder Woman achieved the first movie. And she really wants to make sure that the sequel has that as well. let me just say while we're on the subject of like the romance, like that, the, the love story between Diana and Tre- you know, Steve Trevor is probably the greatest love story I've ever seen in a superhero movie. 
Uh, I don't know if I'm just speaking out of my ass here, but I really can't think of a time where I was more invested in a couple uh, in one of these movies than I was when it came to Steve and Diana and their, you know, Gal Gadot and Chris Pine's chemistry together and what happens at the end of that movie and how it affects her. Like, that was just, oh, uh, it gave me all the feels in the world. So, you know, if, if Jenkins and Johns are able to replicate the amazing balance of tone that the first movie had, then, you know, Wonder Woman 2 can be really, really special. So I, 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 hope, they, I hope they get that done right. Um, while we're on the subject of DC... Uh, really bizarre confirmation came from Matt Reeves this week. Um, you know, earlier this year, as we all know, and as I was uh, kind of at the uh, forefront of reporting, you know, Ben Affleck wanted out of directing the Batman. He seemed kind of burnt out. We know he was going through some personal stuff. He had rehab and he's dealing with the divorce and all that sort of stuff. But he just seemed to be like not wanting to be involved anymore. You know, the first thing was he dropped as director. Then right away, rumors were that he dropped. Uh, he wants to drop out of the movie itself. Um, so, you know, Matt Reeves was asked about that. And it's the most bizarre confirmation of, of news that should be obvious uh, that I've kind of ever seen. Uh, he just said, yeah, right now, that's exactly what's going on for sure in terms of will Ben Affleck be back as Batman for the Batman? Like if you're trying to quell the rumors, if you're trying to put minds at ease and give the, uh, give the indication or give the impression that everything is smooth sailing in terms of having Ben Affleck reprise Batman, why would you preface it with the words right now as if that could change? You know, like, shouldn't Reeves be much more confident about this by now? He's he's wrapping up Apes, which is about to come out and is supposedly fucking phenomenal. And he's about to go full steam into the Batman. Shouldn't he know, like, for certain, not just right now, shouldn't he know for absolute goddamn certain that Affleck is playing Batman? So I just found that very strange. Yeah, right now, that's exactly what's going on, for sure. Like... It, to me, it just sounds like it's an oddly non-committal confirmation. And I'm not saying this because I think Affleck's not going to do the movie. I, I think he is. I think he's a man of his word. I think he, he's got a contract to make three movies, and he's going to fulfill that contract. You know, he was in Batman v Superman, he's in Justice League, and he's going to do the Batman. So I'm not pointing this out because I, I, I'm trying to say that I think Affleck is going to bail. I think we're absolutely 1,000% getting a Ben Affleck Batman movie directed by Matt Reeves. I'm just confounded by this weird, non-committal sounding confirmation from Mr. Reeves. Uh, so I just kind of wanted to point that out. Like, why the fuck would you say it that way? Um, and just open yourself up to that many more questions. And that, now it makes me wonder if maybe he's not going to do it. So if anything, Mr. Reeves' confirmation makes what was once a sure, safe bet in my eyes now suddenly seem not all that safe. Um, all right, shifting gears over to uh, the Sony Spider-Man stuff. You know, there's a little more details. I know I kind of ranted on a little, a little bit there in the beginning, but there is some information 
some details about the nature of the deal between Marvel and Sony about Spider-Man. You know, there's been a lot of there's a lot of vague stuff about this deal. No one really knows who gets paid for what, who's in charge of what, how is this going to work? And according to recent reports, here's how it's going to work. Uh, Sony apparently paid for Spider-Man Homecoming. You know, the, the full production budget, like this is their movie, okay? And they will keep all the profits from Spider-Man Homecoming, but money did change hands when they paid Marvel an undisclosed producer's fee for their help. However, Marvel Studios is expected to benefit from a huge surge in merchandising as Marvel actually owns the rights to that side of things. So you get that? Marvel Studios made some money on the initial deal. They're getting a producer's fee for essentially, you know, making the movie for Sony. But the real place they're making their money is going to be when it comes to the merchandising. Marvel owns all that stuff. So the toys, the tie-ins, Marvel will, t- you know, studios will take all that. Sony will keep all of the actual films profits. So that's an interesting little bit of insight. Then, um, you know, when it comes to the movie itself, you know, while Feige was given, well, Kevin Feige was given creative control, Sony's Amy Pascal, my good friend, remained instrumental in many key decisions, including the casting of Tom Holland, the development of the script, and the hiring of John Watts as director. She also apparently played a huge part in the development of Michael Keaton's Vulture. And while the reboot was shot in Atlanta, where Marvel Studios has been filming a lot of stuff, it was edited and scored on the Sony lot back in Culver City. So that's some interesting insight into how the, you know, the, the powers are broken up uh, when it comes to Spider-Man between Sony and Marvel. Um, and while we're talking Spidey, you know, we all know he's going to pop up in Avengers Infinity War. And people are wondering, you know, is it, uh, it going to be a bigger role than, than Civil War? Is it going to be a, a big prominent you know, role in the movie itself? Uh, since he is about to have this huge homecoming, you know, this big movie. Uh, and Kevin Feige said, I think it might feel bigger a little bit because, because of homecoming and because of what people know from it, but it's about on par with civil war. So, you know, that, that's, that kind of gives you an idea. I think what Spider-Man was on screen, maybe, you know, a total of what, 10, 15 minutes in civil war. So it looks like, you know, he will have his, you know, his chunk of the movie or his, you know, he'll have about that much screen time. But hey, if they use him as effectively in Infinity War as they did in Civil War, I don't think anyone will complain. You know, he he really made his presence felt when he was in uh, when he was in that movie. I know he really he's like one of the main things that stuck with me when I think of Civil War, a movie that I think was somewhat overhyped and overrated. The two things I think about were the great characterization of Peter Parker, Spider-Man, and the uh, the epic fight between uh, Cap, Iron Man, and Winter Soldier at the very end. I know everyone else talks about that airport fight. I don't give a fuck about the airport, airport fight. That felt like just bubblegum to me. It was just an excuse to have all these heroes showing off their powers. It Narratively, there was no tension. There was nothing there for me that actually thrilled me about the airport sequence. I thought it was cute. I could have done without it. It's not what sticks with me. But Peter Parker, Tom Holland, stuck with me. 
So, like I said, if they use him as effectively in Infinity War as Civil War, then I'll be very happy. Um, and yeah, and then he also just kind of made a you know, Feige let, dropped a little you know uh, tease that you know there's a bit there's a pretty big crew already in those movies you know uh, Infinity War one and two, but you might keep an eye out. So, you know, there's going to be cameos and people who pop up for little bits here and there. And it sounds like, you know, we already know Infinity War is going to be a huge goddamn movie just in terms of its sheer scope and scale. So, you know, uh, as long as they balance it all out, I guess, you know, that's something to be excited about. Um, Two more news items for you. there's There's a big report making the rounds now. That Warner Brothers is actually taking pitches for a Red Sun movie. Now, for those unfamiliar, Mr. Mark Miller, who wrote Civil War for Marvel, uh, you know, the comics, not the movie, uh, he also wrote, you know, like this Elseworlds tale for DC called Red Sun. It, it posited the question of what if Kal-El had landed in Soviet Russia instead of in Kansas? And... Um, you know, it was just this, you know, this sort of self-contained Elseworlds tale. And apparently Warner Brothers has been taking pitches. Mr. Miller revealed that on Twitter. Uh, and Jordan Vacht Roberts, who did uh, Kong Skull Island, revealed that he was one of the directors who made a pitch. So uh, people are talking about this now. You know, honestly, I, I, I don't think we should be putting so much stock in this, not because it's not true, but because I'm not sure how serious they are. You know, right now I kind of get the sense that over in Warner brothers, you know, there are people who are just trying to mine the DC library for anything that could make them some good money. So what are they doing? They're running down a list of what are the best selling DC books? Well, what are the ones that have the biggest following the biggest buzz around them? And they're just trying to have conversations to see, you know, is there a way to make this profitable for us? You know, comic book movies are a huge deal right now. So naturally, they're looking at the DC Comics library and going through all of the major books and probably, you know, weighing their options. Um, But when it comes to Red Sun itself, you know, personally, I kind of feel we've already got our our Elseworlds Superman (laughs) You know, if the main conceit of Red Sun is the question, what if Kal-El landed someplace that didn't nurture him into becoming a virtuous hero, isn't that the current Superman anyway? I mean, let's be real. You know, with a Jonathan Kent that tells him that maybe he should have let the kids on the bus drown, and a Martha that tells him he doesn't owe this world a thing, don't we kind of have an alternate take on our wholesome hero as it is isn't that what henry cavill's character already is um you know so like you know if if the idea is to showcase a darker different take on superman then they're really just kind of repeating themselves I'm, i'm i hate to put it that way um honestly all i want when it comes to a superman movie kind of a side note is like i was thinking about this the other day I think there should just be a movie called Superman. And I know you may think of the Christopher Reeve movie that way, but remember that was called Superman the movie. You know, it was trying, the, the title itself was almost like a marketing ploy. They wanted to make sure people knew 
that this was, you know, hey, we're taking your beloved Superman character, making a movie out of him. Because remember, that was like the first time they ever attempted to do this sort of thing, this big budget blockbuster superhero movie. So the first movie was called Superman the Movie. Then they went with numbers, Superman 2, 3, 4, The Quest for Peace. Uh, I think when they ever get around to making another Superman flick, I don't want Red Sun. Uh, I don't think we have any place right now in this crowded landscape for just a standalone Elseworld uh, Red Sun movie. I just want a Superman movie called Superman, not Man of Steel 2. I mean, as it stands, Man of Steel as a title, didn't really work for the Zack Snyder movie. And remember, that that title wasn't even meant for that movie. That title was originally the name that Brian Singer gave his sequel to Superman Returns. He was going to make a movie called Man of Steel. And in theory, that title would have probably tied in thematically to what the sequel would be about. There would be something about the way the character is depicted or something that happens in that movie that, you know, makes that title make sense. You know, like when you think of the Dark Knight, yes, the Dark Knight is Batman's nickname, but that movie showed us why he's the Dark Knight. And then there's that brilliant bit of voiceover at the end of the movie where Gary Oldman ends with that line about him being the Dark Knight. So, you know, these, these, these fancy titles only work if they're tied into the movie. The Dark Knight worked. Man of Steel had nothing really to do with that movie. And, you know, there, there was nothing about the idea of a Man of Steel that was worked into that script or part of that movie. So that's why the idea of a Man of Steel 2 is like, no, go fuck yourself. Give me Superman. Because as it stands, we haven't really gotten him. And if that if that leaked trailer description for the next Justice League trailer is true, which, by the way, it can't fucking be true. But let's just say for the hell of it, it is. And that it's going to end with Superman and the black suit and the red glowing eyes and a beard and a, and, and, and a mullet. Uh, fuck you. Then you're still not getting Superman right. But again, it's not right. Ooh, I have to take a deep breath. It's not, uh, it's not that, that trailer is not real. There's no way that they're about to release a trailer that depicts Superman that way and that doesn't wait until they have a bunch of new footage from the jet from the from the Whedon reshoots. Uh, there's just there's no way. So I, I don't buy that rumor at all. But uh, yeah, just again, in closing, give me Superman, not Man of Steel 2, not Red Sun, not some you know, fucking stupid name. Just Superman. Let's convey to the audience that you're finally going to get your new Superman. Because we haven't gotten him yet. We've gotten sulking Man of Steel Man. Um, and okay, I'm, I'm done with the comic book shit for today. Uh, last bit of news is you know, one of my other passions. Horror films. Uh, they just announced that The Conjuring 3 is going to happen. Now... I'm kind of torn here because I really liked the first Conjuring. Uh, Conjuring 2, I enjoyed. I found it to be a little slower, and honestly, I fell asleep. I don't want to blame the movie. Uh, I did that thing where I think I'm tw- I'm still 19 years old and can start a movie at midnight and still finish it. <laughs> and so my wife and I started The Conjuring 2 uh, fairly late at night, 
and I just couldn't make it. The, the last half hour, I didn't see at all. Uh, but overall, you know, I like James Wan's vision, I, and I like Vera Farmiga. You know, I, I like that whole, I like what they're going for with these Conjuring movies, with the way they're going through the Warrens, um, you know, uh, what do you call that? They're the, all their paranormal investigations and going through their real-life investigations and making movies out of them. And to obviously taking creative liberties, because most, you know, that shit isn't real, let's be honest. But still, they thought it was real. The people they were treating thought it was real. So giving these in giving these wild stories the Hollywood treatment is pretty fun and intriguing, you know? And then there is that suspension of disbelief of like, well, since so some of this did supposedly happen, you know, it's interesting to try to put yourself in these situations. So I, I love the general idea of The Conjuring as a franchise. Um, but where I get worried that it look, it sounds like James Wan will not be returning to the director's chair. We know he's busy with Aquaman. And in general, I think he's a little tired of the horror movie genre. So he's trying to stretch his wings a little bit. And, you know, I'm just kind of I'm just kind of weary about that. But regardless, uh, I'm sure my wife will be very happy to hear that there is another Conjuring movie on the way. Uh, so that pretty much covers it for the news this week. Uh, a couple of things. I'm going to give you my recommendation uh, for the week. And I'm also going to let you know what I'm watching. So I'm going to get to the recommendation first because I'm pissed at myself. I wanted to bring this up last week. I told you I'm trying to make this uh, a weekly staple on the show where I give you guys my, my recommendation of the week. Uh, past recommendations include Out of Sight, Still Crazy. Uh, did I do a third one? I don't know. Uh, my recommendation this week, and this one's actually easier for you to watch than uh, the other two that I've said, because it's currently on Netflix. So maybe I'll try to do it that way too. So it's a movie you can actually have easy access to. Uh, those other two, you know, you'd have to like dig them up. You'd have to find them some other way or pay for an on-demand source. Uh, this one is on Netflix to the best of my knowledge. I saw it on Netflix myself like two months ago after seeing it in theaters, uh, two years ago, but this week's recommendation is Nightcrawler starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Renee Russo and the great, the late great Bill Paxton and directed by Mr. Dan Gilroy. Uh, Nightcrawler, you know, it was an indie, so, I mean, it didn't get a huge wide release. You might not have seen it at your local multiplex. You might have thought, eh, well, why do I care about a movie about Jake Gyllenhaal as a guy who films news? You know, like, oh, and by the way, Riz Ahmed is in it, by the way, who he's a big deal now, thanks to Rogue One and HBO's The Night Of, but he, you know, he does great work in this movie as well. So you might be thinking, you know, when you first heard about it or you saw a trailer, it might not have appealed to you. Nightcrawler is a fucking riveting movie. Uh, it's, you know, the, Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is unbelievable. He creates a character that, like, it's nothing like him. He, he really immerses himself in this role. The way he walks, the way he talks, his tics. This fully fleshed out, multi-dimensional character that he created for that movie is unreal. And it's creepy as fuck. It's not a horror movie, but there's lots of like the tension is really there as you as you look at this fascinating character study of a guy who has no morals whatsoever 
trying to get ahead in life and the unbelievable things he's willing to do in order to come out on top. Uh, it's creepy. It's fascinating. The directing is great. Like I, I want to see more from Dan Gilroy. I really do. Um, so yes, check out Nightcrawler. Trust me, you will not regret it. Uh, a couple months ago when I saw it on Netflix, like I had a friend over who was totally skeptical. When I, when I, when I proposed it, he's like, why Nightcrawler? Uh, what the fuck is that about? I don't care. And by the end, he was, he, he was like so thankful to me for showing it to him. So I want to see if you feel that way also. Give Nightcrawler a shot this week and tweet at me. Let me know what you thought of it, okay? Uh, in terms of what I've been watching this week, the two biggies were uh, House of Cards, finally. I started this most recent season. I'm five episodes in. And Narcos, which I started last night, and I watched two episodes back-to-back right before going to bed. So a couple quick uh, impressions of that. So House of Cards, uh, I'm finding fucking all kinds of riveting. Uh, I'm liking the writing. Some of it's a little bit like I can't believe that this stuff could really happen in real life, but you kind of get the sense that this is a well-researched show and they know their shit. So in theory, some of the outlandish situations we're seeing in the, sh- in the series could really happen in real life. Uh, I guess we kind of have to take that leap with them. So there is some stuff in there that's like far-fetched, but I'm still like, I'm hanging on every moment. My wife and I were pissed when, uh, you know, every episode seems to end on a cliffhanger. <laughs> and she's like, God damn it, I have to go to bed. But yeah, we've watched five episodes over the course of two nights. And, you know, she's a school teacher, so she's got to wake up early in the morning. So we can't keep going well into the night. But the writing is so good that if we could, we would. We'd be up until three or four trying to polish this whole season off in one go. It's fucking addictive. Uh, Narcos has been on my mind all day. I've thought about it about six times while recording this podcast with you. All I want now is for tonight at 10.15 to come where I can kiss my wife goodnight and watch Narcos for a couple hours. I started it last night and I can't fucking wait to dive back in. It's one of these shows that's going to have to be one of my personal shows because uh, I can tell it's not really my wife's thing, and me and my wife have a million shows that we watch together, so this one's for me. Notch this one in the me column. So I, but the, the, and that's cool to have my own show, but on the other hand, it makes it tough because I mean, it means I can't watch it until everyone's asleep. You know, it's not an appropriate show for the kids, and I've got a three and a six-year-old. I can't be watching Narcos when they're around. And I'm not going to watch it when my wife's around because we have our own shows to watch. And that would be rather rude of me. So I literally have to wait until about 1030 every night to continue Narcos now. But I fucking it looks like I'm going to be doing that every night for the next week or so. However long it takes me to get through these two seasons, because based on what I saw in episodes one and two, Narcos is right up my alley. I'm loving the performances. Um, I remember I praised the fuck out of Boyd Holbrook based on his work in Logan. And that's before I ever saw this. I remember having to write about him, you know, without knowing who he was. And people were like, wait a minute, you're just discovering Boyd Holbrook? You've, you've never seen Narcos? No, I hadn't. And now I'm watching it. I'm like, oh shit, I get to see what the fuss is about. 
I get to see why people weren't surprised about how good he is in Logan. Uh, the guy's got, you know, the guy's got chops and magnetism, and I hope he really goes far because I'm liking his character, Murphy. I want to find out more about him. And it, the show sits rather comfortably on his shoulders as he's the narrator. And, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of this story unfold through his eyes. And the guy who plays Escobar is otherworldly kinds of good. Uh, I'm just, I, I'm like, I'm totally fanboying over Narcos right now. I know it's like a two or three year old show at this point. So I'm like way late to the game, but I'm just loving, I'm loving the atmosphere. I'm loving the settings of the seventies and the eighties and Colombia and Miami. Um, I love Pedro, Pedro Pascal. I love that guy. He and I we're Facebook buddies. He and I, uh, I think he's great in everything he does. I thought he was a. I thought he was wonderful in Game of Thrones as Oberyn. I think he's great in everything he does. He's he brings an authenticity and a dedication to each role that he plays, and seeing him as this cop, uh, this Colombian cop on the drug beat, in this you know like the 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 little story he just had with the prostitute in the second episode really really spoke to me and touched me and I'm very just gripped and invested. And tonight at 10, 15, 10, 30, can't come fast enough. I'm going to be shoving my wife into bed and going, all right, honey, good night. Here's some sleeping pills. I got to go. Uh, so I can watch me some more Narcos. Um, but all right, that is it for this week's show. Uh, this is not another two hour and 20 minute edition. I'm very sorry. That's not going to be happening all that frequently, truth be told. Uh, but that was a fun Friday episode. I will tell you that much. I really enjoyed putting last week together. But this week, we're clocking in at around an hour and 15. Hopefully, you enjoyed this this hour and 15 minutes that you've let me into your ears, into your brain, into your heart. Thank you for the wonderful reviews. Please continue to send them in. And I will be back next week. Until then, adios. <laughs>